0: Hello, everybody. Uh, Dr. Rick Wallace here with Dr. Michael Blanchard and together we are the teachers and we have Dr. Cleet Ladd who uh, works in an area that I'm immensely passionate about. So this is going to be exciting for me uh, to have him expound on what he's done, what he's discovered, what he's been working on for decades. He's also uh, a, a good friend and, and, and associate and colleague of Dr. Blanchard, So they've known each other for years. And so uh, I didn't tell Dr. Blanchard this, but he's going to lead this conversation. And you guys will probably love it because, Doc, you should have saw some of the comments that came in from last week, you know, because you were even more subdued and, 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 and uh, quiet last week than normal. And so uh, it was little smart, little comments like, don't talk so much, Dr. Blanchard, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> you know, uh, and, and of course, so we're going to put you uh, in the hey, position. Well,
1: Doc, you know, I, I, I'm i a man of few words, man. And, and, and Dr. Cleet knows this. I'm not a, a big talker. I, you know, I try to, you know, <laughs> mix my words and everything and, and only speak to areas that I have content knowledge in. So if it's something that I don't have content knowledge in. I'm gonna to defer to those that do, you know, I'm not just gonna to talk to be talking.
0: So you didn't have a whole lot of knowledge in doula when, huh?
1: No, no, <laughs> I don't have a whole lot of knowledge. We, we, we had a doula on last week, uh, Dr. Cleet. And, and,
0: and so, uh, so yeah, but they were like, man, ooh, Dr. Blanchard talks too much. Oh my God, don't talk <laughs> too much. Doctor. And I said, no, I said okay. Uh, so but
1: the idea is to have the, yes,
0: People, I, right.
1: You know, they know what you think. They know uh, primar- primarily what I think because they some of them follow me on um, a Facebook. But I'm I'm not a big talker, you know. But right. those that know me know that, and you know that too, Doc. So I know they're probably saying that that, that you're you're talking too much, right? That,
0: but that's their that's their way of saying shut up, Doctor Rick. Right, that, right. right. I'm not saying it. You know, hey,
1: you just put it out there that uh, Doctor <laughs> Wallace is not talking too much. Dr. Blanchett doesn't talk that much. That's the, that's the only thing.
0: So. Right, so look, uh, what, so what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna introduce the one topic we have for our rapid fire session at the beginning of the show. We're gonna talk about it real quick and then we're gonna allow you to introduce uh, uh, Dr. Ladd and talk. we're gonna get to talking about what's going on and I, I'm excited about it cause it's right where I've been for so much of my academic career and cultural and community career so uh this past week we found out that a promising young athlete in the nfl henry ruggs iii uh, was involved in a tragic uh accident in which he ran into someone and their car burst into flames and they died in the car along with their pet and he was doing 156 miles an hour and uh, his blood alcohol level was twice the legal limit, and I framed my entire conversation around uh, a couple of points. Uh, we need to start preparing our kids to be in environments and situations that they haven't been in. You're asking a 22 year old to go into a situation in which he pretty much has limited exposure because he's in Sin City, where. I can imagine that a bunch of stuff that even as an athlete he wouldn't get away with in other cities, they're letting him slide with number one because they just got the team. Everybody's happy that they're there. He's a star on the team. And blah, blah, blah. Uh so preparation. Uh obviously, first and foremost, my heart goes out to the victim and her family. Uh, that's where it has to start at somebody lost their life because of a decision, and that's where it has to start. But also, uh my, my point was simple, and then I'm going to turn it over to you, Doc, and then Dr. Lack and Ray. My point was, he absolutely has to meet and deal with the consequences of his actions. I think one of the biggest problems we do for kids who we see as special or gifted or some kind of way going to do something is we relieve them of consequences their whole life. And so they never have to face them. And so then they end up with massive consequences that can literally totally shift and change their entire lives. So, first and foremost, you gotta answer, you gotta deal with the consequences. There's no escaping, there's no okay, what about no? And people, people start saying his life was over. No, his football career is probably over, uh, because he's just a PR nightmare. And so even if he ends up not getting time, I don't see the NFL dealing with him anytime soon, if at all, because this, and then there's film. So, you know, you know how the NFL is. It was all good with Ray Rice until the film hit. And then all of a sudden, you know, hey, we can't deal with you. You're you're out of the league. Well, they've already cut him off the team, and I'm pretty sure he's going to be out of the league. My thing is on the redemption side of things, I think that you hold him accountable. But at some point in time, if the worst happens, and he ends up with 20 years, 20 years from now, if he has to do day for day, which he probably won't, he's going to emerge back into society. How he emerges in society is gonna depend on how we as his people treated him, how we dealt with him. Um, And the crazy thing is, and I'll say this and I'll give it to you, Doc. Probably the most anchored statement I've heard from the public came from somebody that I was having an issue with it just a couple of weeks ago about how they were dealing with the Gruden thing, but it was Derek Carr. Derek Carr says, Right now, I can tell you he's going through a lot to to, to what 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 has happened, and the fact that he's taking a life, he's going through a lot. What he needs right now is to be loved, he says. And if nobody else will do it, I'll do it. And he said he's not even my teammate anymore, but he's a good kid who made a horrible choice, and he shouldn't be thrown away. Now. You frame everything around that. My thing is, again, I'm not arguing that he shouldn't get consequences. I'm not saying how much he should get because if it was my child, I have to see it from that perspective. But I also have to sit up and say, like, if we're going to throw our children away from making poor decisions at 22, we won't have many after long. I probably wouldn't be here. So uh, the thing is, number one is we need to prepare them better. And then we need to also understand that they're going to make choices and that that aren't. And I don't care how well you raise them. You put them in environments they haven't been in before. You can't dictate or predict what decisions and choices they'll make. Not Doc, it's you.
1: I guess I'm just wondering where the support was for this young man. Like you said, um, some of these guys, both in NBA and NFL, are entering the league at 18 sometimes, 19, 20 years old. Um, I know – all of us are <clears throat> remember Dr. Harry Edwards, this black sociologist that uh, at one time he was contracted to the NFL and did have uh, rights of passage programs for the NFL uh, where, you, where the, the young men were mentored and uh, had mentors with them and were able to uh, teach them how to be a professional and how to uh, uh, avoid the pitfalls that come with all the money all the women and all the glam and all of that and so i, I guess i'm just wondering where where that safety net was and where that uh, where that uh, program was for that young man
2: <clears throat> dr lat yeah well first um you know i would use it as a teachable moment for future uh black boys black athletes professional athletes uh because uh too often when we talk about rice and passion you know, we, we, we tend to use alcohol, uh, how much alcohol we can drink and handle as, uh, a, an indication of our manhood, you know, and that's not, that's not correct, you know? And so that's one thing that I, that I think of in terms of, uh, support, you know, uh, cause I believe that he will can have a message for a young, for, you know, brother Ruggs can have a, a message that he can deliver himself to young black boys, to all boys, you know, and especially the athletes. i uh, give you an example about in 1985, we played a, a basketball game. We were, we were city employees, and we had, a, we had a, 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 almost a semi-professional basketball league, and we had a young man. I won't, I won't mention his name, but uh, we won this championship at Market Square Arena. Uh, we played before the Pacers in Atlanta, and um, th- this guy from New York Knicks came out and gave his card to, this, to one of our teammates and said, hey, man, you know. You you had a great game, bro. You, you, we we want you to come to our summer camp, and this brother did. And and when he uh, now uh, he he took the car, and then he said, "Man, I gotta get some money to, to go." So we we were thinking, "Well, like, well, we'll loan him, we'll loan him some bucks or something like that if that's if that's necessary," you know. But he went out and made a drug deal, and then beat the uh, beat the part beat the other beat the other guy with a hammer and killed him. See, one decision, one decision, one moment totally affected this guy's life, the victim's lives, our lives, you know, and I think that a lot of times that that's one thing that we don't teach our boys is how important that one moment or one decision can be and, and the impact that it can have on their lives. And then, so then I think about forgiveness, you know, we've got to forgive brother Riggs, brother Ruggs, and we've got to help him, you know, let, let, our, let, let him know the community supports him and his recovery and, you know, I don't want to say rehabilitation because I don't believe that, that there is in, uh, uh, habilitation for us. But um, I think that we, you know, we've got to wrap our arms around him and let him know, uh, regardless of when he gets out, whatever time he does, you know, but that he can give back even while he's in the system.
0: I agree 100%. And I think that was pretty much my closing thing is I think that that's where his redemption comes from, is being able to take his experience and change the lives of other people uh, and be an inspiration and a word of wisdom uh, and a cautionary tale. And, you know, that's the whole thing. And someone was saying that they don't know about redemption. My thing is, if you're not going to allow a person a chance to redeem themselves, you might as well just put them away forever. Uh, because you're bringing them back into a world where they got to have a place or nothing makes sense to them. And you still got a problem because the moment life doesn't make sense to me, there's no value to it. And if I don't value life, there's all kind of problems that come out of that. And so I agree. I think that everybody made a valid point. I think that we can use what Dr. Ladd talked about to segue into his work and the importance of preparing young black males, and how it ties into the school to prison uh, pipeline, and so much more. And so, Dr. Blanchett, I'm going to turn it over to you. You guys can take it from there, and I'll get in where I fit in.
1: Okay. Yeah. So I wanted to bring Dr. Ladd on to talk about uh, school to prison pipeline. Uh, he's, like I said, he's been working in the area for over 30 years in Indianapolis, uh, specifically with Indian, uh, Indianapolis Public Schools. Uh, his own rights of passage programs and, and as a author. Um, I'm sure we've all seen in the past 25, 30 years, the increase of police presence in schools with school resource officers. We've seen uh, a decrease in, in black teachers and black administrators. Uh, we've seen an increase in discipline uh, where we're funneling uh, black students into uh, correctional institutions and programs. Um, so I just wanted to bring him on to discuss that. Uh, Dr. Ladd, could you like introduce yourself a little bit and then talk about some of the work that you're doing in uh, with the school to prison pipeline and specifically uh, in that uh, uh, talk that you just had to wake up uh, everybody. uh, Let's educate rather than incarcerate with uh, former judge uh, Jeffrey Gaither. And I believe it was a a, uh, young lady by the name of Dr. Lucretia Brown uh, that was a former superintendent or current superintendent.
2: Yeah. Thank you. Uh, so um, currently I'm working with the Indiana Council on Educating Students of Color and we're focusing on on um, after school activities to, to teach them about our heritage and our history. So we're not starting with slavery. We're going all the way back to ancient Kemet, ancient Egypt, and we're bringing them forward, you know, to let them know that Black lives have always mattered. This isn't not, nothing new. Uh, I think the Black Lives Matter movement uh, kind of uh, exploded on the scene, but like I said, Black lives have always mattered, and we have been leaders in the, the world development, socialization, uh, communities, uh, democracy, uh, forever. You know, since since the beginning of time. Um, but what we did is we looked at some 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 things about the school to prison pipeline. And um, I was really blown away that, uh, especially by Dr. Lucrecia Brown and Judge uh, Jeffrey Gaither, because they had two different, uh, they came from two different professions. You know, one is educator and one uh, from, the, from the Justice Department. And uh, what they shared with me was was just amazing when they talked about the school to prison pipeline. For example, uh, Dr., Dr. Brown and then also Diana Daniels, Dr. Daniel, Daniels, they share with me this preschool to prison pipeline. That they say that this is preordained, pre preplanned, and that uh, we need we need to be careful with uh, what's going on in preschool because uh, 3.6. Let me let me get this correct. Uh, black preschool students are 3.6 times more um, suspended out of school suspension than any other student. Preschool, three times, three point six times. Uh, that's, that's almost four times the amount, you know. And so that starts there, and you know we, we they've got this plan to uh, pay for preschool now. Uh, the, the federal government's talking about plan for paying for preschool, and we're saying you know we we got to have some educational equity, you know. We can we got to have some some, some um, um, evidence that they won't use this. Uh, as uh, a means to further subjugate incarcerate and not, and not educate uh, our black children. And so that's one thing the other thing was that uh, Judge Gaither talked about how schools uh, from like 1990 until about now uh, use the juvenile courts as a discipline arm as opposed rather than, Rather than handling them problems problems themselves, for example, with under zero tolerance, the uh, the uh, the the court was getting students who were uh, basically received three strikes for, for walking out of the line or talking out of the line or uh, yelling. You know, uh, he, he uh, Judge Gayther mentioned a, a first grader that was they went to arrest him because he pushed a principal, a first grader, giving him a record already you know he was six years old so that you know that that plans the process right there that starts the process you know and then uh what does that do what does what does that do to him they talk about psycho i mean soon excuse me social emotional learning scl that traumatizes a black male six-year-old All right, and that begins the process so those one of the things that, we, that we're really uh focusing on we want to prevent that, and uh, one thing that we've done since 1982. Uh, do you remember Dr. Ralph Dow, the uh, uh, he was director of Wheeler Boys and Girls Club?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. remember I was in the police athletic league for many years, so yeah, yeah. I worked with Ralph a lot.
2: Yeah, and thank God, thank God for the Pal Club too, because they, they saved they saved me yeah, and saved a lot saved of us. A
1: lot of people. I spent like three years in there, so yeah. yeah.
2: Uh, that was my that was my because my my father passed. I never knew him, and uh, but he passed, and when, the first time I saw him was in his coffin, and I didn't I didn't know. Oh, hey. he was. Wow. Same
0: here. First time I saw my dad was at his funeral.
2: Wow. Yeah, and people were saying, "Oh, we're so sorry to you know that you lost your father." And I'm like, I said, "Well, who is this in word?" Because I didn't know it, you know. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and- you know but the pal club came to my to, to my to my rescue you know and wow. uh, they got me in, involved in sports i played basketball i played high school and college basketball and thank god for them but uh when i, I went to the army and in in 1977 i was stationed at fort urban california and i was a journalist and i was i was assigned to go to uh dig up a human interest story and i ran to this mojave indian and he told me to come to them to their vision quest and, and observe their vision quest, which is their rite of passage. And I was blown away by what I saw and witnessed because they, they separate the boys when they when the moms and the fathers wait watch for them to start uh, start having nocturnal emissions, and then they remove them from the community and they start their transition to manhood. And I, you know, make a long story short, I said, "Wow, you know." Black boys need this, you know, and so uh, Dr. Ralph Dow was telling him about. It. He said, "You know, well, let's see if we can't develop something like that." And you know, over about the course of about four years, we did, and we took boys primarily. Uh, we were using it as a gang intervention and a gang prevention uh, step to uh, to rehabilitate our boys, you know, to to, to make, help them make the transition to manhood because, you know, you talk about mentoring. And one of my earlier mentors, uh, I'll say his name is, is, is Big Man. Uh, Big Man had a purple Cadillac and used to let me drive his Cadillac. He said, take my car to the car wash, clean it up for him. And I'm like, oh, man, I get to drive the purple Cadillac and, you know, gangster lean and all that stuff and, and pick up girls and stuff. And um, uh, Bradley Bulldog was a, was a police officer and he was a Pell Club officer, James Bradley, he used to call him Bulldog. And he said, Cleet, don't you understand that that this man is using you? He's letting you drive his car so you can take attention off of him." Police was following the car. I didn't know that they were following the car, following me, so he could do his business, his illegal drug business, you know. And I think this guy looking out for me, you know, he wants me to be successful and all like that. But no, that's not that's that's not what he was doing. And so uh, the pal club officer Bradley Bulldog, he pulled me, you know, pulled me to the side and talked to him and said just pull over one day and see how many people are following you seem to see the law enforcement following you. I'm like, wow. And I did that. And an officer came out and, and searched me and searched the car and all that. And he said, whose car is it? And I told him who it was, but you know, the long story short was that we need proper mentors, you know, to guide our boys into, you know, to make the transmission, the transition into manhood. And so, uh, you know, uh, the next day, you know, uh, big man said, hey, you know, take my car. I said, no, nah, man, I, I, ain't, I ain't down with that, you know? And uh, he wanted to fight me. Uh, and I was like, you know, you might with me, but I'm gonna fight you back, bro. Cause you know, I ain't no punk, you know? And, uh, but he, you know, he didn't. And then the, the the PAL club officers put me in the, put me in the PAL club basketball. And I said, whoa, man, this took off, you know? And so like I said, you know, when you have the proper mentors, in the proper program and they boy, black boys can make a great transition in the manhood, you know, and, I, and a lot of people don't realize that it was law enforcement officers that did that. I don't know if you remember, you remember Bruiser and, and uh, Nevels, Nevels.
1: Yep. Yep, you know, absolutely
2: man, yeah, they do. Man, these guys took us all around the country, you know, and took us on college tours. Ralph, Dr. Ralph, that took us on HBCU college tours. And we went to Atlanta, we saw a black mayor, black police chief, you know, black business owners, black presidents, I mean, black uh, university presidents. We you know we visited Tuskegee, Morris Brown. You know, I'm like, wow, because I'd never, prior to that, I had never been out of the hood. Wow. You know, and so you imagine the trauma that, you know, we went to four or five funerals as teenagers from, from friends of ours who were killed or overdosed. You know, so this is all we understood and all we learned. But the Pal Club and Dr. Ralph Dow from the Wheeler Boys and Girls Club—that partnership—they they exposed us to the world, and I was like, man, this is beautiful, man. We don't have to live this way, you know. And so I, I put all that into the rite of passage that, with up under Dr. Dow's guidance, I—you know—we didn't realize that Ralph Dow had a PhD in education because he was committed to the Boys and Girls Club, you know. But he was also a uni- university professor. We didn't know that, but. Uh, you know, he guided me, and so we took over 300 black boys uh, over the years through a writer, through our male rite of passage, Men Men ally for Leadership Empowerment, and each one, each one, you know, and so we we had mentors. Uh, you know, we had a lot of guys, a lot of guys that came through the program became mentors to to, to successive generations and stuff. And we also took about 30 girls through it. We had the women had to had to, had to write uh, had to design a, a pasture for them. But I tell you what we did, you know, uh, and what we're still doing. We you know we, we we moved it to the alternative schools, IPS alternative school. See, the, the original alternative school was about project-based learning and different learning styles. Every student had an individual learning plan. But then IPS kind of. Follow the national model to make it a penal, you know, make it more of a, a penal-based institution. So, so a student would, you know, you could beef them up and yeah. send them back, or they would be sentenced to alternative school. But that was not the original alternative school plan, you know. And yeah. so we did. We took uh, the boys uh, through uh, rice of passion in alternative schools, and a lot of them uh, turned out to be quite uh, popular. I mean, well and wealthy, you know. And I think we only had of about three hundred. I know three that actually went into this to the criminal justice system
1: hmm. yeah we definitely need uh those type of programs i guess my frustration sometimes is that we we're not able to make a, as large an impact as i would like because we know we know it works i know it works i've worked in several uh programs like you said the police athletic league uh job corps i've worked in job corps uh down here in south florida that's a very good program i just wish we could get into the the you know, get into the mind frame of creating these type of programs for ourselves and funding them. That way, we have more control over them and we can reach uh, more students. You know, it, it reminds me of my 19-year-old daughter. I remember when she was in, in middle school. Uh, every time I would come and pick her up, I would have to go to the office to sign in. And every time I went in there, man, I'm sure you maybe have had this experience. There were 20 young black boys in there. Every time I went in there, and I'm like, you know, what's the principal doing, or what are the teachers doing? Uh, And you know, when I investigated further, it's like every, you know, if everything that a young black boy does, go to the principal's office. Everything that they do, go to the principal's office. So that that that's a big problem. You know, we've all talked about how the makeup of uh, the teaching force also affects the discipline. You will have uh, I know in South Bend where I'm from, we looked at the disciplinary matrix and you might have uh, young black boys making up 20 percent of the school's population, but they're making up 69 percent of the disciplinary action. It doesn't take a mathematician to know something is, something is wrong. You know, and, and I think a lot of times the teachers are not able to uh, reach them. You know, they're not able to to make a connection with them. And uh anytime they put up any type of resistance, go to the principal.
2: Yeah. yeah you know, and let me let me take you back to antebellum Bellum and uh, the white woman and the black male dynamic. Now move that forward to 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 the to the 20th century and 21st century, and you have that white female teacher and that black male student. And imagine that dynamic, because there's, there's, there's still some kind of residual effect from slavery that, that, that I feel, and, and studies say that, from slavery that impacts the relationship between white female teachers and black male students. And in nine in times out of 10, the black male student will be referred to the principal's office. Uh, uh, for example, um, I had, a, I had a, a student whose mom left him and she, she left him and moved to California. He was 16 years old. He stayed in the house by himself, and she paid the, the bills for about two months and told him he was on his own after that. And so this guy had no respect or trust for women. And a teacher, a, a white female teacher, you know, yelled at him and told him, you know, what he needed to do, he needed to shut up and sit down like that. And he said, you know, F-U-B, <laughs> you know, oh my God, he called me a B, he said F you know, get to the principal, Wilson, all like that, you know. Well, I was the principal. And so I said, okay, why are you, t- you telling that? He said, man, because I don't trust women. You know, women women do this, 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 and that, you know. And that was because of his experience with his mom. So I, I was telling the teacher, I said, you know, his, uh, his response to you really had nothing to do with school because he's a young 16-year-old black male trying to figure things out why his mom left him, you know. And I said, so we're going to you know, we bring the school counselor, but I'm going to refer him to a program. I put him in the Boys and Girls Club program. And uh, he lived in Hallville, but we took him to, to Eastside, uh, to, uh, uh, to Baltimore, and, uh, and uh, you know, got him in the club there. But uh, then, like they said, you know, we did all that. But then, you know, they wanted me to suspend him. I said, no, we're not, we're not suspending him. I'm not putting him in the alternative school program. No, I'm not like that. He's going back to class tomorrow. He he will apologize, he will apologize to his stu- to his fellow students, he will apologize to the teacher. But we're going to keep him in the classroom so he can learn and grow. And so they they went, you know, they went above my head and and, and, and the and the, and the school board said, "We agree with Dr. Ladd. The the goal is to keep him in school, to keep him learning and to keep him focused on becoming a productive citizen." You know. And so uh after that, i've only I've only expelled in thirty years, I've only expelled one student and that student brought a gun to school. That was it. You know, and I can tell them the, the objective is to educate them, you know, not only with the academics, but about life and socialization.
0: Wow, wow. Uh, so many points you hit on that, like I said, I've been so invested in in my entire life, and you go back and we start talking about, you, you mentioned as early as preschool, they start to criminalize. Well, if you look at the entire system, it's built on alienating young black males from the from the system itself to create a discomfort at such at a at such such a high level that it increases the risk that they will not complete school. Now we know if they don't complete and get that high school diploma, they're five times more likely to become incarcerated. Yeah. So if you go back, you can sit up and say, "Okay, I did a." a Uh, uh, a a position paper on special education referrals of Mm African-American males, and we talked about the the prevalence of referring. We have to look at, again, the uh, teaching demographic. Uh, Close to 60 to 70% of the teaching population are white middle-aged women who have a historical relationship with Black males, as you put it. And yes, there's a, a heap of empirical data out there that backs this up. This isn't some uh, for, re, for, for pushed out uh, concept or hypothesis. This is literally uh, something that's substantiated and that you can actually study and measure. So then you look at the fact that there's this teacher who already has a view of who this black kid is. And as early as five years old, she's afraid of him. Mm-hmm. Not, not in some mystical, I made it up because I no, literally she is afraid. She doesn't feel comfortable. In, in her mindset, he doesn't fit into her authority. So anything he does is a problem. So she's looking for a reason to get him out of her class to bring back her comfort. So the first thing is, can we find a way to put him in an IEP? So, so what we're going to do is he's either learning disabled, ADHD, uh, oppositionally defiant, something in that way that we can put him in where he's not really fitting into his environment. He's not socializing to a normal environment. Well, first and foremost, if we're really going to talk about normal environment, let's talk about what normal five-year-old boys are doing, regardless of their race. They're not sitting still for four and five hours listening to you talk. That's not how they learn. How they learn is exploration. How they learn is the challenge. How they learn is to move. Plus, boys are our little bitty uh, future man who have a natural, inherent, inbred instinct to protect. So, what are they gonna? What are you gonna catch them doing in the bathroom? Slap boxing. Why? Because it's a natural part of the development of their skills to be able to physically not only protect themselves but protect the women and the and the children. Yeah, that that's natural. So you got to have that as an understanding. And one of the biggest issues were cultural uh, uh, discrepancies and disparities. You can't understand the culture of a black male coming out of a black home dealing with black issues that you have never experienced and cannot experience because you're white. Even in white poverty you don't experience what they experience. That's
2: right.
0: So you you don't have a cultural awareness of what they're going through. So again, then if I can't get him in the IEP, I'll get him on behavioral issues. And now I have seen a 6-year-old kid in cuffs. Hmm. Are you kidding me? The six-year-old kid. See, and, and what you don't get is there is the optics of that that could, because the white people who see the six-year-old in cuffs says how bad does this kid have to be for them to feel the need to cuff him? He's dangerous at five. That's a subliminal message. Yeah, it's not something being said, but it just goes on. For you to be in cuffs, you had to do something bad as an adult. What in the world could you have possibly done to get in cuffs at five? So you are really dangerous. So that means if he's dangerous at five, how dangerous is he at 20? Mm. Okay, so then you go back and say, okay, that's criminalizing. But what does it do to the black people? It normalizes being criminal. Yeah. I'm already used to being in cuffs at five. So then it sets a mindset of who I am in this world, where I belong, what I'm going to do. And so now you start the track of moving them towards what you you, you got to tell me how the black race as a whole makes up 13.7 percent of the population and we make up 40 percent of the prison population. You got to explain that to me, hmm. you, you know, and you can't tell me that it's because we are naturally and instinctively criminal. So what's going on in, in, in all of this? But uh, the rite of passage thing is huge to me. Uh, it's something that I've been on because one of the things that lessens the chance of uh, ending up in prison or lessens the chance of committing violence is proper socialization.
1: Yeah.
0: That comes through rite of passage. That's where Black Men Lead came from, is saying we have to be involved. And like you, Dr. Blanchard. then I'm going to turn it back over. Like you, my concern is we got the knowledge. Uh, Dr. Blanchett has doing, been doing for years what I'm doing with Black Men Lead. The problem is it's so localized that you can see you can see the you you know it works because primary example in 30 years of being an administrator he's expelled one student i i i know stu i know schools where that's happening once a week
1: yeah
0: okay because number one is on both ends we're not socializing these young black boys in, and when I say socializing, there's an element that comes with black males that doesn't come with any other group. So when you socialize a black male, you have to racially socialize them because yes. their blackness leads in every area they go going to. Even as academics, we know that we're viewed differently solely when we walk in the room. Despite the fact that we've got all the uh, credentials, despite the fact we put in the work, despite the fact we've published I don't know how much, we still are viewed differently. So we have to understand as black men how to deal with that. Well, imagine being a black kid in an environment where you have no say
2: so. Right. That's why I believe, you know, I'm doing some work with the International Democratic Education Council. And this is what really blew me away. When when we talk about this uh, school to prison pipeline, they talk about it being a global issue. Yes. Uh, from England to Denmark to Australia, there's you know this this thing of of criminalizing, uh, particularly the black males, the young black males, five six seven years old, starts you know starts then, and this is a global issue. And uh, I, I was really blown away by some of the data that they showed me from for like like for in in, uh, in uh, uh, Great Britain for example in 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 the in, in, the, in, the, in England they They made about what was it let me let me look at this up real quick, that uh, black males were forty one percent of the discipline issues. Mm-hmm. Now you know they're not forty one percent of the population, <laughs> you know, and then same thing, you know they had similar statistics in Australia, similar statistics uh, statistics statistics and data in in uh, uh, France, you know now these these people may, may uh, are primarily of African origin. You know, they're not descendants from slaves, you know. But uh, we, we all go back to our, when, when Dr. Rick talked about the cultural aspect of being black, being a black male. You know, the thing, you know, we go back to ancient Egypt, to ancient Kemet, and you're talking about kings, queens, emperors who, who, who created, you know, we talk about Imhotep and him, you know, building pyramids and designing pyramids and creating math and medicine you know, and and, and cataloging dis, uh, diseases and, and cures and stuff like that. And they take that away from us and try to tell us that we're not great, that, you know, we're, we're just above the animal race. And then bring that back forward to uh, today. And so many of these white, and I say these, so many of these white women teachers still see us in, as animals, you know, that need to be corralled, contained, uh, uh, detained. Um, a friend of mine, uh, S. A. Tenenbae, he wrote this book called "Cycle, Cycle." Uh you, you remember Tenenbae? Yeah, I know Tenenbae. Yeah. Yeah, and he talks about in uh, in Indianapolis. I mean, in in Indiana in eighteen right after emancipation, before emancipation, there was less than forty black males in prison. But after emancipation, it went up to almost four hundred within two years. You know.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, Dr. Rick, you remember I told you about that out of uh, Dr. Cora Richie Richard Mann's book. She quoted that uh, right after emancipation that, uh, you know, the system created the system of prison. There really was no form of prison before emancipation. And right. I think it was like within five years because prison, I mean, slavery obviously was, was, was a type of prison, but the actual prison population, I believe from 1865 to 1870, went from zero to like 30 made up 36 percent of, of black folks in just five years so you can see where uh it was purposely uh the, the system was purposely developed for that reason
0: yeah I have a question that popped up and I think that is prevalent and it's dealing with school I'm gonna put it on the screen uh and then I'll read it and then you guys can weigh in on it it said do you all know that school now no longer facilitates parent-to-parent meetings? When students have disagreements, they do not include the parents to defuse. Schools discipline and then call home. And yeah. and I remember you guys. We all remember that the first element was getting mom involved. But th- we were, we were talking about a time then where you didn't want the principal to call your mom. <laughs> you know, so just the idea that. You somebody's calling home was enough to get you to get your act together. So that was one element of it. But again, we're, look, we're at a time now where we've moved to the fastest way to criminalization is to, number one, load your disciplinary history. So what happens in disciplinary history, and then you guys take over, what happens in disciplinary history is if once I, and I had to tell my sons that, what you don't realize is this is going to follow you from, elementary to middle school. And what'll happen is eventually you'll get the teachers that sit up and want to review your history. And they know you before you get in the room. They don't know the kid who had some issues, but is a great kid, cool to be around, fun to be around. They just simply see you as a problem. What happens now? They judge everything you do based on that idea of who you are. You don't get the chance that, okay, he's just having a bad day. So, that's a problem is they load you like that. And so based on what this person is saying, and I agree, how does that impact us with, with, with no longer having the parents, uh, I mean, being pulled into resolve situations before they become technically uh, disciplinary action?
2: Yeah. Well, for, for example, uh, I've had students that had fights and uh, going back to my childhood, my mom was a teacher, and we lived in the neighborhood with you know and there were other teachers that lived in our neighborhood at school 37 and school 26 and you know uh, even even at uh, school 73 that we went to, and so when we had a fight, they would call our parents and our parents would resolve the issues and and, and both parents would grab both boys and you know settle the issue and you know grab you by the neck and say this, this ain't happening again you know, and and it didn't happen again. And so by bringing a parent in, you know, they were able to uh, diffuse the situation, but also help the parents and the boys build uh, relationships. So one of my best friends is a guy that I got in a fight with in the sixth grade. And we've been lifelong friends, you know, because of our parents. Because our parents said, well, we didn't send you to school to fight. We sent you to learn. Now, on the flip side of that, um, I've, I've been in schools where uh, I was a dean at the school where they uh they they called the parent and said, you know, you need to come and pick your child up because he got into a fight. And she said, well, first off, uh, who was he fighting? And they said, Well, you know, they, they said this thing about we can't uh, divert, divulge this because it's a privacy issue or something like that. They didn't want the parents to meet each other, to, you know, to talk to each other. And so I said, Well I'll tell you what. You know, this, this school, I stayed at that school for about two weeks. It was it was early in my career. I was there for about two weeks, and I left. But um, so we had the, I said, you know, let me see, because I think I know one of these kids' parents. And so uh, the parent came, and I said, yeah, I did know her. I said, you know, can I uh, talk with you and, and your son? And, and so he said, yeah. He said, no. I asked him, who did he, who did he get in a fight with? And he told me. And I said, y'all need to meet each other. Long story short, the, the two parents met each other and found out they were related, you know. And the boys built great, great relationships, you know. Getting back to Dr. Dow. Dr. Dow broke up a fight at the uh, Boys and Girls Club and put and, and, and zip-tied the boys' pants together and made them do uh, police work, you know. They, they had to police the, the, the building. They had to pick up trash around the building uh, tied to each other. They became friends. You know, we talk about You know so the the whole thing about this the reason they don't include parents is because they want to keep us separate they want to keep us divided they don't want us to unite and to come together and that's what 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 you really do is when you have conflicts you communicate with, with each other you talk with each other and you work your differences out and you build community but that's not what the schools that's not what the system wants
1: absolutely not um i think there's more a move to restorative justice too Uh, I know that's happening in Indiana, where you try to solve the root cause of the problem and make all parties accountable rather than just suspending and sending everyone home. But I agree with this person that uh, asked the question down here in Florida, as well as Indiana. I've had kids in the public school system for the last 25 years, and uh, we have moved away from including the parents in the solution. And in the name of FERPA, you know, they say, well, you know, privacy FERPA, you know.
0: Yeah. Right. Uh, we The same person had one more statement, and this definitely falls under the uh, umbrella of what I've spent so much of my time trying to do with uh, Rights of Passage program as far as socialization she says, And now here in, in a Georgia suburb, a disagreement between a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old has ended in an ambushing and gun violence on the 16-year-old who has now died from a gunshot wound to the head. This has to end. And again, it's a responsibility of the community. And I think that's something where we are, uh, that's what we are really uh, failing in the community is properly socializing kids because there's an absence of male modeling. Whereas in when we grew up, even, even in, and Doc, you and I have talked about this, even in the poor modeling, that was still a sense of certain things and codes. There are no codes in the community. If we talked about this, like when I grew up, that was an understanding. Kids athletic, kids smart, kids gonna make it out of here. He's off limits. Not only was I off limits to the little hard heads that might've been looking at me, but they noticed, okay, you're a little hard If we don't watch you, you get in trouble. They will watch me. And if I got caught doing something that they knew wasn't acceptable, the hardheads, the OGs, the cats with records will pull you over and say, What are you doing?
1: Yeah.
0: But what he was saying is there is a scope. There is something in the community that's commute. There's no community now. Everybody's out for themselves. Everybody is looking to do what they do. And so what happens is when it comes to this violence thing, the one thing I learned when I was studying and researching African-American adolescent and young adult male violence, there are these contributing factors that are always present. Uh, at number five is uh, urban hassle. Urban hassle is when you grow up in the inner city, you got sirens all times of the night, gunfire all times of the night. You got to wake up and navigate through drug use and gun violence just to get to school. Then you got to deal with it in the school. Then you got to navigate back home and you got to learn and study. That's urban hassle. That keeps you on the edge. That puts you on a emotional and a psychological edge. Then there is being the, uh, a witness to violence which is a desensitization factor. Then there is being a victim of violence, which again is a desensitization factor and a rage builder. Then the two at the top are lack of proper racial socialization, simply socializing a person into where they're at, who they are, giving them a purpose. You're not just here for the sake of, you're not just here for the sake of existing. You're here for the purpose of actually doing something that changes the world. You, you have value in this community. But guess what happens when a child looks at themselves in the mirror and sees value? They now see it in the other child that looks like them. And so now they are less likely to take that life because they see themselves in the reflection of that person. So the, the next part is a little bit more difficult to understand, but the most powerful influence of African-American young, uh, adolescents and younger them. Uh, young adult male violence is the feeling of being disrespected. And if you ask yourself, that doesn't change after you age. The thing that gets under the craw of any man is the feeling of being disrespected. And if you actually do a poll of violent crimes in prison, people who are serving type of violent crimes, the vast majority of those, some kind of way felt disrespected. Whether you're on my cut, You notice my cut and you own it? Or you kick my shoes and didn't say, I'm sorry? I mean, onto the, you were messing with my girl. All these things come from what they interpret as being disrespected. And the reason their view of respect is is marked, again, there's no male modeling to give them a real idea of what respect is. So they actually, to them, if some of them, if you don't fear them, you're being disrespectful. You know, so you got all of those things have to come into play. But how, to, to my to my end, and then you guys take over, to my end, they say, what do you do about it? Again, you have to do what Dr. Ladd is doing and, and, and what I'm doing, and I'm pretty sure other guys are doing, in pockets. It's got to become a national network of a universal rite of passage that black boys are walking in the man. Frederick Douglass said it, that it's easier to build strong uh I mean, it's easier to raise and and, and, and and grow strong children than it is to repair broken men. Once, 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 once you get them to a certain age and they got this mindset and everything's the enemy, now trying to get that subconscious ideology out of their head is hard.
2: Yeah, I think what, what, what my experience is, is that we, um, as black males, have an extended adolescence. You know, we we don't we don't matriculate into proper adulthood because of racial fact- factors and and some things that have been um, um, put upon us. We we talk about the SEL, social emotional learning, and uh, we did a study in here in Indiana, and we f- we found out that by the third grade, that a student has uh, the average black student has four traumatic events, which which could be uh, domestic violence, violence, loss of a loved one to violence, um, or um, uh, sexual assault. And I was blown away by that. And and it, and it, you know uh, I don't know what we can do to to kind of reverse that situation other than to come together as a community. To come together and and, and devise uh, programming such as rites of passage, so that we can take students the, the, through the stages. So when they reach puberty, they you know we may even have to consider uh, abandoning the idea of the concept of adolescence and just put them into adulthood and in training, adult in training, you mm-hmm. know, because uh, once once you get there, uh, this concept this concept of adolescence is European, and then we're stuck. You know, we get stuck there. And that's why we try to prove our manhood by violence. I got a gun. I can drink more than you. I can smoke more than you. I got I got more women than you. You know, things that that really don't matter, that don't uplift or, or, or bring our community uh, forward. And so, you know, that's one of the things that that I, that, I, that I think about in terms of what can we do or what can I do? You know to kind of reverse that, and that's why I've committed to helping boys make that transition. And uh, you know we're we're we we're we're, 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 we're so um, we're so victimized, and I, I hate to use that term because, uh, but victimized is 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 uh, since sixteen nineteen. You know when we talk about sixteen nineteen project, that they keep changing the game on us to keep us victims. You know. And so what can we do to uh, prevent that uh, from occurring in the future? Because, you know, uh, we've got so many young men, uh, you know, to, to, to give you an idea, um, you know, I don't know if you remember remember this, but I was a vice lord. But the vice lord that I was was not uh, the tattoo, right, you know, the graffiti vice lord, the drug vice lord. It was, a, it was victory in, in ensuring our community's economics, you know. I remember when Chase Bank gave the Conservative Vice Lords in Chicago about $150,000 to create a breakfast program. You know, so we tried that here and it came up with Black Unity Development and we got lunch programs for summer for summer programs. But then all of a sudden it became a narco economy because you know, where they brought this they introduced narcotics and, and, and this drug trade to the Vice Lords and 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 the, and the disciples which was called Black Growth and Development but then became black gangster disciples, you know, and so the things that we were doing in the grassroots to make a positive difference in our communities, they corrupted by bringing drugs into the community. And now look at us. Uh,
0: We have another question. Um, uh, And I think the question was, is there a uh, rite of passage program there in Georgia? And uh, I know that we don't have one, but what I've tried to do, and then you can you, you can speak on it. Uh, what I've tried to do is anywhere that people are willing to be trained. Uh, you know, I'm willing to invest time. You know, uh, in in trying to get that done. But my goal is, and I has been in in Dr. Blanchard. You can you you can attest to this for years. It has been to create a network where every city has you know and to me you also can attest to this it to me it's it's been black man lead for me forever because that's that was my baby that's what i did but it's this isn't about uh uh copywriting and 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 all that other stuff this is about whatever whoever name on it whatever sounds the best merging with people and connecting and making sure it happens and what is what matters to me so It's connected with people who are serious about it and then making it a national unified thing. Uh, It's great when you're doing it in pockets, because what you'll do is you'll create these great minds that will come out of it that are successful and do things and hopefully impact the world in the future. But if you're talking about actually changing the trajectory of an entire race of people, you've got to have a bigger hit and a bigger reach, and it's got to be done simultaneously. And so this means that we need a national universal rite of passage where it's being taught the same way. So if I literally break off and move as a parent and take my sons from one city to the next city, there are young men being reared and taught the same principles the same way as he he plugs right in and he's going to be held accountable right away. And he knows what's expected of him. So there's not this void of like, oh man, I'm in a new place. I'm all alone. And that isolation is another thing that happens. That isolation makes you feel vulnerable. So you start to assert yourself to remove the feeling of feeling weak by overcompensating through hyper-masculinity. Mm-hmm. And so all of these things need to be in place. So I told the person, as far as I'm concerned, if you can find enough people interested, I'll give you everything I have and then we can start feeling all- and building. So... That's the way to me that we've got to get it done, but we need to become more deliberate in doing it.
2: Yeah. You know, let me let me say this. So uh, when I when I started when I took it up and and Dr. Dow had me doing my research, he called a a friend of his who was a rabbi, and I went to visit this rabbi. And he told me about the bar mitzvah, and the bar mitzvah is universal. That's and where I got
0: universe. that's where I got the idea from. The universal is from bar mitzvahs.
2: Yep. And, and that, I mean, you, you know, the Jewish, the Jewish, they don't care about that even in education because they will have their own schools They will teach their own way. they teach their own history, you know, and, and uh, some of the native Americans do that, uh, you know, the indigenous people do that as well. And I was really blown away because I talked to uh, three rabbis and one was Hasidic the other one was reformist. And they were all on the same page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were all on the same page. I'm like, we got it. That's something that we have to do. Dr. Rick, you, you know, you're right. Uh, we, we've talked to I've done uh, I've talked with churches about it and they want to do it in a denominational sense. And I said, no, it can't be that way. And I've talked to, to some uh, Islamic friends and they want to do it the same way. You know, uh, well, I'm going to do it the Shiite way. I'm going to do it the Sunni way. I'm like, no, man, that's that's, you know, that's suicide. You know, my, my grandfather used to tell me about the shotgun approach versus the rifle. The shotgun is all over the place. Mm -hmm. The rifle is is precise, one
0: point, right? Precise and and precision and being deliberate. And one of the things I put down in my journal daily when I'm I'm doing my 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 thing daily is the words precise and deliberate come up constantly because deliberate is a focus and a concentration on a specific thing with intention. Mm is not being led by something else. It's by establishing an attention that this is what's going to happen. So you be deliberate in your actions, and you be focused in your actions, and consistent. And the thing is, that's what uh, I saw with bar mitzvahs is that it's universal. It's absolutely universal, and it, it transcends uh, the different sects of Judaism. It's it's it, it is what it is, and I think that's extremely important. So when I start talking to people in the community, whether you are Baptist, whether you are holiness, whether you are Catholic, whatever, the one universal thing you have in common is your blackness. So that's where you start to develop from is in your blackness because nobody knows you're Catholic by looking at you. Nobody knows your holiness by looking at you. But the moment you walk in a room, they see your blackness. And if that's what's going to be judged first, that's when you respond first. And that's where you have to be prepared. Nobody's going to care whether you're practicing Islam in, in, in any sense when they meet you as a Black person. All that stuff comes out later when people get to know you. They get to get the deeper. What's at the beginning and the forefront? How are we going to confront that? How are we going to deal with each other? How do we recognize each other first? I don't know what faith you practice. I don't care. I see you a Black man with the same interests I have. We can put those other things aside because the one thing we can't escape is our Blackness. And my thing is we've got to have a responsibility to the next generation of men that says we're going to prepare you to take this thing further than we did. I think that's one of the biggest failures that we have is that as black men, we don't experience power on a universal level the way white men do, you know, where it's just going to be passed down to you. You're going to get certain opportunities you're going to unless you're just really. Trifling, you're gonna find yourself in a position where you have more people answering to you than you answer to. That's just the way it's been. it's not built that way for us. That's why you have black preachers who are 80-something years old still in the pulpit, train nobody to follow them because that's the only power they've ever experienced, and you can see it in every area. So, my thing is I told I told you this, doc. I said, by the time I'm 55, man, I don't want to be on the forefronts, I want to have trained men who are younger than me who have the energy to be, I want to be the voice of reason and wisdom. I want to be the one that these young cats call and pick up the phone. Hey doc, man, I'm about to go out and do what what are you, you know, I want to be what we should be at our ages is starting to move into the elder realm to where we are the wisdom that these warriors tap into to make sure their heads are on straight. But what we can't do is be so caught up in the attention we get By the space that we've created that we didn't prepare anybody to step into it when we're gone, because then that creates a vacuum. If you get snatched out of your space and nobody's there to fill it. It's a vacuum. And then anything gets sucked in. Man, we're just not recovering from trying to replace Dr. King and Malcolm. because Nobody was prepared on the next level to just rise up. And what happens also when you train young men that every last one of you are a leader, every last one of you are a warrior? Guess what? There's no head to cut off. You're right. So assassination no longer works.
2: That's right. I, I, I know a lot of pastors here locally, and my father-in-law as well. Um, they 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 moved into their 80s, and they all passed. <clears throat> And four or five of the churches closed because they did not pass it down. They did not, you know, they did not set it up for, uh, for, for the for the for the leadership to continue after their after their after they left. And then I, I looked at, at some things like uh, some school, they're, they're, like like uh, when we come to education and stuff like that. I had I had a couple of principals that really helped me. Uh, Jethro Nays, He 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 uh, he was an older uh, black guy and he took me on he, he took me on to mentor me as a school principal the state assigned me a mentor you know to give to get my license the state assigned me a mentor and I, I went through the motions with him but i learned from Jethro Nays, and Jethro Nays was he helped he helped design one of the first alternative schools and so what we learned is, is that, particularly us we learn by doing we learn by projects you know project based learning and uh, to give you an example, um, my my uncle went to the sixth grade, but he could repair a car even and he would and he would tell me, he say, I would say, Uncle Don, my car, my car ain't working, ain't starting. He said, Well, turn the key and let me hear it.
1: <laughs> and he
2: would tell you what's wrong with the car about the sound, you know? And I'd use that example to, 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 to talk about vark analysis, visual, auditory, read, write, kinesthetic. That students have different learning styles and learning strengths, and some students can learn by listening, others can learn by reading and writing, but others have to learn by doing it, you know. And so, so uh, I had a student that that couldn't couldn't get the length, the, the area, you know, the, this geometry problem. So I told him, I said, well, I need you to come by. I want you to carpet my this bathroom for me. I mean, I'm not uh, to uh, lay this towel for this bathroom for me. He said, okay. I said, well, I don't know what you got to do. I said, I guess you got to measure it. So he measured. He said, oh, "Okay." He said, "Well, it's, uh, it's it's eight feet long, and it's four feet wide, and then this part is six feet." I thought. I said, "Well, how much? You know, how much material do you need?" He told me what he needed, and I said, "Okay." I said, "Now, go back to your class, your geometry class, and look at length times width equals area." He picked it up, you know, but he had to have his hands on it, you know. He had to, you know, and I I told the teacher, I said, you know, you can write a lesson plan that includes some differentiation so the students, so all students can learn, you know, because lots of students, like like, like Dr. Rick mentioned earlier, they ain't going to learn but you're sitting on the board lecturing. Right. You know, and I I didn't learn that way, you know. Right. I learned by doing, I learned by listening. Like I said, my Uncle Don, you know, he passed, he passed in 2019. He was fixing 2020. I mean you yeah, know 2019 2018 mercedes and bmws with a sixth grade education no computer no diagnostic just let me hear
1: yeah yeah i mean you all bring up a very good point about uh, education and uh, how important the lineage and culture and lived experiences are of teachers and uh you know we I don't know about you, but as I walk through the schools down here in South Florida, there are very few uh, black males in the buildings. Uh, you know, I don't know what it's like there in Indiana or in Indianapolis, but uh, in South Men, when I go back home, I have one daughter that's still there in school. And, uh, it's very hard pressed to find a black male teacher. Uh, the, the, the few black male, few black teachers we do have are mostly female. And so, uh, we definitely have to, to, to increase the number of black teachers and younger teachers. Our teaching force has really aged. And I know, you know, this Dr. Cleve, um, and I think that many of them cannot connect with our youth. And so I think that's affecting the type of education they get. They're not tech savvy. So we know with COVID, everything is technology. It's going into technology. I know down here in South Florida, where I'm at, you know, uh, Most of the teachers were my age, middle age, our age, and they had a real tough time adapting to the technology which affected affected the type of education kids get on top of everything else they're dealing with.
2: But, you know, speaking about relationships, um, you know, one of the the people that I had a great relationship with in school was the black janitor, Mr. Powell, you know, And, and he was coming to me and said, boy, now, you know better than that, you know. And he would just drop a little wisdom on you. And I and I looked at that. I was I, I was I looked at that when I went to I, I go to schools for you. I work for University of Phoenix, mm-hmm. and I go do teacher observations and stuff and principal observations and interact with them. And I looked around and I said, "Dad, I, you know, I see you know mainly white female teachers." Uh, then I looked. I said, "Well, who's your custodian?" I like to talk to your custodian, and almost like seventy percent of the time the custodian is a black male. And all the students respect him. He can he can walk in. I, I see this, I seen this one uh, uh, custodian brother. The kids were fighting, and he would, he had the mop, he laid the mop down and went over and separated the kids and said, Why are y'all fighting each other? And, and and the kids were like, Well, he said so. He did this, and he said that to me. And so, so the brother said, Well, I'm gonna say this to you. You're here not to fight. He picked up the broom, picked the mop, and walked away. And the kids walked away, and went back to went back to learning. You,
0: you, you know what what the element is the simplicity of the element there. Guess who the janitor represents? Grandpa. <laughs> the one person in the family everybody respects.
2: Oh yeah.
0: And you know you might not have dad, but grandpa's there because even if it's mom's dad. Hmm. He's there. You know, if he he was alive when you came along, there's a respect for that person because of what he represents. And when he had all he has to do is show a genuine concern and they embrace him. And it's the simplicity. But that tells you what happens when we don't have enough males. And that's something else we had when we were in school. Mm -hmm. We had the black coaches, the black teachers, and they didn't play. And you know, in the last thing you want, you it, didn't, it never even got back to my parents because I played football and ran track, I couldn't get back to the coaches, <laughs>
2: right?
0: And so, and then the, the way it was, a lot of the coaches taught classes too, so they were in the school classroom, they were it was a coach a few doors down somewhere, and they knew you was an athlete. Like, you want me to go get coach? No, 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 no I'm good. But what happens is. That entire element is absent. It's absent in the school. It's absent in the community. And the most, the most, and people don't get this, you take away the deacons and the pastor, and it's absent in the church. Mm-hmm. The church is roughly about 80% female. Yeah. You know, I wear something by a guy by the name of, I uh, believe it was Leon Pottles and it's an older book but it's called the church impotent Mm. and it talks about how masculinely impotent the church is Mm. take away the leadership and the most the most you get is a few guys in the pools if you take away deacons administrators the the pulpit and all of that you got very little out of that. And the reason is, and, and here's something we can get on and then we're going to go off into the. I want, cause I definitely want you to talk about your lynching project, but here's the thing. And this is where it gets real crazy. He says, because the, the femininity in men is so accepted in the church that it makes the masculine man uncomfortable. Mm. And so he talks about, he goes off into that. But the bottom line is not even in the church do you get the manhood modeled the way you think it should be.
1: Right.
0: Mm-hmm. So where are they getting the modeling from?
1: The hood. Well, we know where, <laughs> the media. We know getting it right. from now. Media <laughs> and the hood, yeah. We got a lot of what they what, what do they call it, Doc? They call it a lot of moistness on the media. Mm,
0: they don't got mad at me because I use that word
1: moist. <laughs> yeah. you know, too
0: many moist cats you know and like i said being being reared by i don't even think i mentioned this uh uh dr Cleet, but uh i wasn't just while i didn't have my dad like i like i said the first time i saw my dad was at his funeral but i did have a man in the house my entire life and it was my great grandfather and i say people when you say your great grandfather people say okay until you say no i was reared by my grandmother's parents mm-hmm. then they then they w- wait a minute yeah you know I was adopted by my great grandparents. So that made me my grandmother's brother. And and it made me my mama's uncle. And I wore those badges proudly. I gave them the business. But ultimately though, that was a different type of manhood coming from someone who grew up, was born in 1909 and grew up as a son of a sharecropper. Mm -hmm. A man who had a second grade education, but talking about could do anything Built his own garage, was a carpenter, changed and did everything. Everything I know about cars, I learned from him. Uh, did everything in the house, plumbing. So, I mean, they were. He, he, he could put his hand on things. To me, still, there's something about manhood when you use your hands mm-hmm. to do something, whether it's electrical work, whether it's plumbing, whether it's automotive work. There's a fulfillment that comes out of that. That's, that kind of solidified you there's a reason why they took that out of school number one is it gave you a means of providing for yourself without advanced education mm-hmm. number two immediately what you find out is a sense of confidence I'm at mm-hmm. sixth and seventh grade and I'm, I'm I'm pulling the block out of a motor and to put it that's major and I can do it well guess what you start thinking I can do some other stuff too right that's a problem for people who literally benefit off of you being at the bottom of the socioeconomic ladder. But that's that's that. But uh, so, Doc, uh, segue us into uh, what we're gonna talk about as far as, which I'm really excited to hear about as well, is the lynching project.
1: Yeah, uh, Doc, Dr. Cleet, I know a lot of us who are in Indiana and some people around the world remember that picture in Marion, Indiana. I know you know what I'm talking about. And there are three, no, two uh, men hanging in that tree in Marion, Indiana, and there's a little girl down there and there's a guy pointing up in the tree. And for me, I, I always remember that because I actually went to Indiana, Westland University, and, you know, growing up in South Bend and living in Indianapolis for 15 years. Uh, that picture always always uh, uh, jumped out at me because of being from Indiana. So. We can segue into what you're doing with the uh, Indiana Remembrance Coalition and the connection that you have with that and one of your uh, ancestors that was actually uh, lynched in uh, Indiana.
2: Yeah, thank you. So um, uh, a friend of mine, who he's a professor at IU in uh, Bloomington, uh, contacted me and said um, he was doing this project Uh, because he discovered, you know, that there, you know, that there were some lynchings that occurred in Marion County, Hancock County, Hamilton County, um, Johnson County, and Plain, uh, Hendricks County. So central Indiana. And so he said, he said, uh, he came across the the name of a person by the name of Eli Ladd. And, and, and he he said, well, let me contact, you know, brother Cleet and see if, 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 if he's related. And, um. So he he contacted me and and uh, he told me he showed he, he showed me the data, uh, the the document. It was it was it was in a newspaper, uh, in um, Bloomfield, Indiana, which is right outside of Greenfield, Indiana, right outside Ma- uh, Marion County. And it said, you know, Eli e- Eli Ladd uh, was beaten and clubbed to death and shot uh, by a group of whites for um, uh, because he was uh, uh, accused of raping someone. They didn't say who he raped. You know, they didn't say that the the that, that he raped a white woman or black woman or nothing like that. They just said he raped that he raped. And so uh, the 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 uh the Indiana Remembers coalition uh don't they don't just use the rope lynchings as lynchings as a definition. So any unjustified killing that, that is racially uh biased, you know, uh is considered lynching. And so uh he sent it to me and i read it and i said well I, I got this uh family we had a family reunion in 1995 that went all the way back to 1835. and um i looked in there and read it and i said well dad there my my grandfather's i mean my great grandfather's brother had a had a grandson named Eli Ladd." Mm-hmm. and i and i uh, so i traced I went, I went back and traced the family trees a little bit more through a the uh, 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 my heritage, and uh, found out, well, Dad, this guy is related to us, you know. And so, I, I immediately started sharing this with family members, and people with, you know, people, you know, the older family members, the, the, those who were in the 80s and 90s, said, Oh, yeah, I remember that story. I'm like, they never told, they never shared that with oh, us, you know. And I think that there was a fear, uh, on their parts for not sharing that with us, you know. So as, as I did more research and talked with more people at IU and got involved with the project, I found out that there was a lynchings at Riverside Park, mm-hmm. Garfield Park, 16th, and, and uh, uh, it, was, it was called Northwest at the time, which is now Dr. Martin Luther King Boulevard, uh, and then in Hamilton County, um, and then uh, 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 Hendricks County, and um, Johnson County. And so uh, the equity, the, the EJI Institute in Selma, uh, you know, they reached out to us and said that, they, you know, they collect, this, they collect the dirt from the places, the lynching of victims, stuff like that, and they display it. And so uh, we're going to have a, a memorial service for George Tompkins, who was lynched at Riverside, at Riverside Park. And so we're going to collect the dirt. We're going to have students collect the dirt and label it. And students are going to tell his story. And we also have students doing an art project on, on, on lynching. So to kind of help them emotionally, because a lot of people don't, you know, once you start reading and, and looking at it it, it, it tends to affect you uh, emotionally. And, and so we want students to be prepared for it. We want parents to be prepared for it. We want the community to be prepared for it, but we're having the students lead it. And I was really, uh, you know, we, we thought we'd have about three or four students, you know, we talked to them and say, hey, you know, what do you think about this project? And now we've got 22 students middle school students and high school students who want to be involved in this project and they want to create art that explains what they read and what they learned about lynchings in indianapolis and in central indiana and i'm, I'm telling you uh it's, it's something we're also working on curriculum to you know to add this to the curriculum base for, for indiana because that's missing as well uh they only start when you talk about the the, the history of, of black people in Indiana, they start with slavery, and you know we, we're like, hey, you know we go way back before that. You know, Africa, you know, Kemet, you know, Mali, Mansa Musa, you know, we go all the way back. You know, uh, uh, Nefertiti, you know, we ain't talking about the white Cleopatra, you, you know, but we we go all the way back. We want them to understand that how this stuff began, how this racism began, because you know, race is is something that the the Human Genome Project, uh, you know, uh, kind of disputed, and uh, they they talk about um, you know if you talk about critical race theory, you know, they say that uh, the uh, how how this developed, this hatred for people of color, you know, and, they, and that's what and that's what they talk about the hatred of people of color. And now people try to say, "Oh, we don't hate black people," but your actions, your history, and your actions, and and, and the premise of us uh, achieving equity and equality uh, does not exist if you don't teach the truth. Right. You know. So I just wanted to share that with you, and uh, I will, I will, I will definitely keep you updated on the progress and the process of, of the Indiana Remembrance Coalition projects and the dirt collecting and the art, the student artwork.
1: Hey, Doc, I have one question. Um, what do the dates, the dates, the range of dates that you have for Indi- the Indiana uh, uh, Remembrance Coalition? You said you, you're, you're so what was the first documented uh, lynching that you all know of? And then what would what is the most recent that you acknowledge in the uh, coalition?
2: Well, th- the coalition uh, starts with 1896 with Eli Ladd. Mm. and then it goes through to 1928 because you remember the Klan built Christmas Attics, right? And Christmas Attics is right at 10th and 11th, at, at, at Northwestern, and they wanted to send a message. The, the the There was some there was some documents that they say they wanted to send a message, and they lynched a, a young 16 a year old. At uh, student uh, at at 16th and, and uh, uh, Northwestern, like like a uh, four blocks away, you know, five blocks away, to send a message, you know. So, but there were other lynchings that, that occurred between that time, and then you know uh, they, they they everybody knows about the lynching in 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 Marion, and the, the, the um, you know that 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 history there, and 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 then you see you know you see the how many kids are if you look at that photo. see how many children are there watching that lynching that witness that lynching that you know it's like an entertainment event you know and so uh you know we're trying to help them understand what they did to generations of their own children you know by allowing them to witness that to further victimize people of color and so then when you come to things such as uh michael taylor right you know they're, they're trying to uh, uh, define those as lynchings as well.
1: Right. That's why I, you know that's why I asked the question, because you and I both know from then having lived in Indianapolis, we yeah. have other questionable uh, deaths of individuals who could possibly be actual lynchings, yeah. not in the sense of the traditional way, but you know
2: yeah.
1: through law enforcement and other means as well.
2: That's why I said they they went beyond just the rope, using the rope.
1: Right.
0: Right. Well, I mean that that's immensely uh, immensely powerful uh, that that's being done. And I think it's important that there are uh, avenues of healing uh, for you because I think one of the things when we talk about uh, the multi generational transmission of trauma, one of the things that we have to look at is we're not talking about the progression of uh, the generational progression of a healed people. We're talking about a situation in which we never, ever got to a point of healing and we're consistently experiencing what's known as re-injury, mm-hmm. you know. So every time a, a, a young kid is killed, unarmed kid is killed by police officers are, in the sense of Aubrey uh a Basically, a white lynch mob chases him down and shoots him to death, again, a lynching. And you have to understand the concept of lynching and where it comes from. Uh, It heightened, it hit its height after slavery. Why? Because slaves, I mean, black people stopped being property and and therefore lost their value. You, You don't kill your property because it's your value. So for slaves to get killed, there was something extreme going on. But once slavery ended, it took off. And people talk about, well, if you compare the number of people who were lynched, the confirmed lynchings to X, Y, Z, and they always use those numbers. Well, you have to understand the concept of lynching. Lynching isn't about decreasing the numbers. Lynching is a form of terror. Lynching is a way you send a message to people that they don't have power, that their lives don't matter, that any moment you can come up without provocation and end it Mm -hmm. in the most horrific of ways. And then that's why... Blacks w- were left hanging doing lynches yeah. because the it, it was more impact uh, emphatic and powerful in controlling those who walked by and saw it than it was with them they're gone but w- what what about the kids and so you got the psychological impact of that that's a part of the re-injury you got the helplessness that comes along with that and the idea of where are we now different from that? And those answers all have to come together. You have to say, where, where are we? How, how are we different now than then? They use the rope a lot less. That's about it. Yeah.
1: Yeah, yeah Doc, it, your, your uh, example reminds me of my dad. My dad passed in 2011, uh, and he was uh, 88. But he came uh, from Wilson, Arkansas all the way to South Bend, Indiana, at 14 years of age. And One of the reasons he left Wilson, Arkansas, he told me, because he was, you know, obviously they were into uh, doing farm work or sharecropping. He didn't want that type of lifestyle. But the other reason he he told me he left at such a young age was lynching. And he said many times he would be riding on the train and the train conductor would pull pull the whistle and that would be uh, a cue for them to look out the window of the train. And they'd look out the window of a train and of course they would see uh, black men hanging from trees. And he said, you know, that kind of uh, you know, terrorized him at such a young age and he didn't want, to, so much so that he didn't want to live in the South anymore. So I just mm-hmm. wanted to share that with
2: you. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about it is we don't, we, we don't know how many lynchings have occurred because uh, a lot of that was not reported a lot of those were written off as uh, accidental deaths like a, 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 there was a, a black man who was who was uh, killed by a train run over by a train but uh, they they said that he was killed because he was uh, he was inebriated but they found rope marks around his wrists you know yeah. And so we, we, we don't have a, a, a true accounting, but we're going to try to get as much as we can and evidence as much as we can.
0: Right. And, you know, I'll, I'll close out my part by going back and touching on the part that you mentioned is the pathology associated with the entire act of lynching and how it was done. And like you said, you're talking about something that, these people literally took pictures of and turned into postcards Mm -hmm. and the presence of young children is early I know I've seen them where the little girl had to be what five six and sitting right up front and they're smiling and they're taking pictures and they're cutting pieces out for the charred bodies to take home and put on their mouths that's a pathology nobody wants to explore mm. outside of the evil of murder what type of pathology and sickness has to exist where you think it's okay to do it in front of your kids one number two that you want to keep a souvenir mm. three and that you memorialize it in photographs
2: Well. Wow. hmm I mean, it it, it almost leaves me speechless, bro. But nobody wants to talk
0: about that. But we are the ones who are inherently violent.
1: Yeah. Hmm. Well, Dr. Ladd, I want to thank you for coming on today, man. We've learned a a lot from you here today. uh, If you would, uh, give everyone your contact information, also provide that uh, for Dr. Wallace to put on the uh, for show uh, when we post it. Uh, how can people contact you, and how can they get involved with the uh, Indiana Remembers Coalition, or how can they also assist you with the work that you're doing with the school to prison pipeline? Yeah,
2: excellent. The 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 best way is email. I have a thirty year old email address that uh, I get you a lot too, of emails. Right,
0: yeah. Robertty, A-L-L, a-l-l. 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 <laughs> Go ahead. Give, give it to everybody.
2: All right. It's C-L-E-T-E dot L-A-D-D at A-O-L dot com. C-L-E-T-E dot L-A-D-D at A-O-L dot com. And I and I respond to that when I check that one multiple times a day because um, a lot you know people that you that you haven't heard from in years uh, will respond to you or reach out to you and uh, you know you don't want to you don't want to miss any connections and I really appreciate you Dr. Rick Dr. Mike Mike because you guys I mean I've learned a, a lot and uh, I just you know I'm, I'm I'm honored to be able to share my thoughts and experiences with y'all and, and love that y'all shared y'all's with me and I really appreciate that brothers.
1: Feeling is mutual. Absolutely. Dr. Ladd, I'll be in touch, my brother.
2: All right, my brothers.
1: All right, everyone.
0: Thank you guys for dropping into another episode of The Teachers. Uh, We want to thank Dr. Uh, Ladd for giving us so much valuable information and sharing. Uh, It's been an awesome day today, and we'll see you next week. We're out.